Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we'll start reading in verse 1, and then we, we will read part of the chapter, jump around a little bit. Make sure you keep uh, Zach, Zach and uh, the entire Veracruz family in your prayers, um, because as I said, uh, Phoebe and her family will be going to the Philippines on Saturday, and Zach will be headed to Iceland on um, Sunday, next Sunday. And then uh, Phoebe will be gone. Phoebe and her family will be gone uh, for several months, three months, August 3rd, until August 3rd. And so that we won't see them for a while. But, um, and then Zach will just be gone for just a little bit of time. So we'll see him again. But uh, make sure you pray for them as they travel, that it would go well, especially with all those family members, right? Yeah. So, all right, Luke chapter 15, verse number 1. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him all, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. This is the parable of the lost sheep. And then in verse 6, the Bible says, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Or Luke chapter 15, just in case. You didn't know. Then in verse number 8 uh, through verse number 10 is the parable of the lost coin. And then we'll read verse 9. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Verse 11 begins the third parable in this set of three. It's called the parable of the prodigal son, but it's actually the parable of the lost son. Verse number 11, and he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am, am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. 
And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we ask for your grace. We ask for your uh, help in both the uh, teaching and in the hearing of the word. Help us, Lord, to focus our minds and our hearts on what you're saying in this passage of Scripture, what you taught to us, Lord, these eternal words. Lord, there's no ability that I have to help your people. Lord, we depend upon your Spirit and the guidance that you give and the grace that you give to speak to each and every person's heart according uh, to each need. Lord, thank you for our church and uh, thank you for each person that's here. Thank you for working in their hearts. Uh, to bring them here today. And I pray, Lord, that each and every person, without exception, would hear your voice today, would be listening, would be in tune with it. I pray that you would give uh, grace. And Lord, there, there are probably some among us that, are, uh, that need to repent. There are probably some, some among us that need to return to you. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, just give grace and like you like you. You showed us in this, in this parable here, these three parables. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask for your grace and help in Jesus' name. Amen. These three parables go together. Uh, I won't read verses 1. That happened once before, as I recall. I'll fix, you, I'll fix this. I'll airplane mode it. Actually, I'll just turn it off. All right, let's try it again. These three parables, they go together. These are the three, the three lost parables. Now, I'll be honest with you. It irritates me that the third of these parables is called the, prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son because we often think the word prodigal means lost, and it doesn't mean lost. It doesn't mean wayward. It means wasteful. The word prodigal means wasteful. And I don't think that's the biggest, the biggest problem that this third parable is, is exposing is how he wasted his father's money. But yet the, the term says that. So you have the parable of the lost sheep. You have the parable of the lost coin. And then you have the parable of the lost son. The parable of the lost son. And what's interesting is in the first two parables, you find, of course, someone looking for the thing that they lost. And in verse 7 and verse 10, I'll read them once again. It says, I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10 says, similar, likewise I say unto you that there, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. So let me ask you a question. Who is rejoicing? That's the question I want you to think about in verse 7 and verse 10. Who is doing the rejoicing in heaven? Because that's, that's a, an important point we'll see in just a minute. Verse 11. Verse 11. I want to talk to you about this lost son. I won't say prodigal again. <laughs> I'll just say lost. Verse 11 says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
Give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divideth unto them his living. Verse 13 says, And not many days after. You see, this young man, it took him no time flat to take the wealth and the blessings that have been given to him by someone else. It took him almost no time to begin to use those things for evil. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Do you think the father was chiefly concerned about his money? I don't think that was his primary concern. Although that was a, a, a grave sin in this young man, that wasn't the chief sin of this young man. In fact, it was just kind of the symptom of the sin. But you notice he wanted to distance himself from his father. Now, in this parable, the father is not referring to our parents. It's not, a, it's not the, the, the comparison, the representation is not to our parents, but to God, but to God. And so what this shows is that the sinner who is, the, the man who is, or woman who is away from God, he, want, he or she wants to create distance between them and God. It's like uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after they had taken that fruit, they, they fled from the Lord. They wanted that distance. You know, it's no surprise when people who, are, who have set their heart on rebellion and disobedience and uh, sin and fulfilling the lusts and the pleasures of this world, it's no wonder that they create distance between themselves and the church, between themselves and godly people in their lives. It's no wonder. Because they don't want that influence on their conscience. They, they want freedom. Freedom. That's such a big thing these days, right? Freedom. Everything's about liberty. Everything's about freedom. In fact, the things that, the things that people used to condemn, they're now saying we need liberty to do those very things. Uh, the, I was listening to a podcast this morning, and it covered the... Uh, it was like a cover, covered a, uh, some news how that they're wanting to legalize prostitution. And it used to be the very people who are pushing to legalize it are the people who used to, to stand against it. And how many times have we seen that here recently? Liberty to do it. We want more liberty. This, this young man also wanted liberty. What's interesting about this young man is he says, verse 12, the problem with this young man does not start in verse 12. The problem with this young man starts long before that. This is just at the point where he had enough courage and he had enough brazenness to say to his father, give me everything that's coming to me. But his heart had departed from his father long before this point. You see, rebellion of, the, of a lost son or of a wayward person, doesn't start on a whim. It begins long before that time, and those thoughts and those desires, <clears throat> they find fertile ground in that heart, that wicked heart, and they begin to grow. Those roots begin to grow down below the surface of the, of the soil. Those roots grow down, they receive fertilization, uh, and the, all the nutrients they need to sprout forward. And when they come up out of the ground, that's where you read verse 12, where this lost son, he's not even lost yet, but yet he is. His heart is lost. You know, in every person, 
every person that goes away from God. And what I mean by away from God is, of course, we know as a believer, we can, we can go, we can wander from God and God as our Father will chasten us and bring us back. But I don't think that's what this is referring to. This is just a parable to illustrate someone who is, who is lost from God. And boy, if you're lost from God, you are in a bad place indeed. Indeed. But this did not start on a whim. This, this started long before this person physically departed. He got enough courage in verse 12 to say to his father, to be brazen enough to demand of his father all these things that his father had worked for for his whole life so that he could use it on nothing. You see, the lost, as I said, the lost sinner wants to create distance between himself and God. That's why he went into a far country. He wants to escape the laws of God to do his own will. Freedom. You know what freedom? You're just saying the Star Spangled Banner. Freedom has limitations and boundaries. Freedom in our country was, was, was originally designed, the, the concept of freedom was bounded by law, right? It was. It was bounded by law. And you know what? That, that is not our standard. The Word of God is our standard. Freedom in the Scripture is also bounded by God's Word. It's not, just, it's not just license where you can do anything you want. But that's what this person wanted. He wanted, this young man wanted out from under the rules and the laws of his father. And because he wanted to do, he wanted to do things and fulfill lusts that he knew that as long as he was with his father, he could not do. But as I said, the rebellion and lust, listen now, was long present in his heart. And how do we know that? Because just as soon as he had the opportunity, what did he do? And that's really the test of liberty right there. That's really the test of where our heart is. When we feel we have license, when we feel we have liberty, what we choose to do demonstrates where our heart was before. And what this young man did is he departed from his father, just as a sinner departs from God. A lot of people, you know, God creates the home. God creates the church. God's created the home and the church. And our children, our families, we, we raise our families in this kind of structure, and it provides shelter, and it provides protection, and it also provides rules and guidance in the way we're supposed to live. You know what? That guidance can become oppressive to the rebellious heart. It can. And as soon, just as soon, the moment that that gate is open, they fly out as fast as they can get to those things they've been wanting to do. See, that demonstrates where the heart of that person is. He threw himself at his lust in riotous living. Riotous living, interesting word. It means extravagant, unrestrained, marked by excessive revelry and wantonness. It's lust. Lust to excess without restraint. In fact, just to show you what, what's being referred to here, he says in verse number, look at verse number uh, 29. 
verse 30, I'm sorry. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots. This boy just didn't go out and do a bunch of stuff, maybe this little taboo or a little, little out of the way. No, no, no. He was blowing his father's living on the worst of sins. Drinking, revelry, partying. You know what? That's, that's no, listen, just, just say it right now. That's no place for a child of God to be. That's no place for a child of God of, to ever be. And sexual immorality, which is referenced here, is also no activity that a child of God should be involved in. You know, and what, even if you're not a believer and you're not born again, that's also, that's also violative of God's commandments. The Bible says, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. But see, all those things are just symptoms of a heart that has long since departed from God. Just got a chance to fulfill the lust. Furthermore, the lost sinner, this young man, he cares not for the pain he causes others. You see, he had tunnel vision only upon fulfilling his lusts, only upon doing the things that he had been planning to do as soon as he got opportunity. He didn't care the pain he caused his father. We don't see his mother, but of course, you assume his mother's there too. We, we don't, that the pain he caused them, the suffering, the loss, the tears, all he cares about is himself, his rebellion, and the pleasure that he wants to experience. He lives only for this moment. You see, this, I'm just, I'm just saying, this is the heart of a person who is wandering from God and, and doesn't know God. This is it. Furthermore, the lost sinner ignores the God who gave him his blessings and instead uses those very blessings to fulfill his lusts. Every person that comes into this world, whether they acknowledge it or not, owes a debt to God because God is the one that sends his reign and gives them the good things that they have. Now, they might, might not acknowledge it, but that is the case. And yet, when we use our, our health and our abilities and our time we use those very blessings God gives us to then fulfill this, these acts of rebellion. It is not pleasing to God. And it is a grievous sin in God's sight. But here's the thing, verse 14. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him to, into his fields to feed swine and he would, have, would feign. That means he would be glad to have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him. You know, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Listen to this. You know this verse. The Bible says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You know, sometimes the sowing is the fun part. Sometimes the sowing is the fun part. It's the part that has pleasure. The Bible says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Here's the, here's the point. God is not mocked. When a man or a woman walks away from God and turns their back on the laws of God, 
and gets liberty and opportunity to fulfill the lust that they've been planning, God's not just standing by and is just like, well, you know, you know, eventually he'll come back and there's not going to be any, any evil repercussions from this. No, 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 no. Sin has a, a, a terminal point. It's not going to be happy forever. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, we read of Moses. And Moses forsook Egypt. And the Bible says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. This boy, no doubt, had some good times. He had some fun. He enjoyed some pleasures, some many sinful pleasures, no doubt. But here's the thing. It's just a season. It's brief. And what comes after that season of pleasure is over is absolutely unavoidable. There is nothing you can do to stop it. Once those seeds are sown, they must, they will bear fruit 100% of the time. So let that be a warning in case there's any among us that are at, this, are at the place where this boy was before he left home, thinking about what he might do if he had an opportunity, thinking about what he might do if, if he had liberty and he felt like he could get away with it. Just remember, that, that period of pleasure will be brief. And then what comes after, you will not be able to avoid. It, I'm just saying this because, because this is what the Scripture says. You will not be able to avoid it. It will bring you down. It will. So it is inevitable that the sinner's ability to sin will come to a halt. It will not be happy forever. It's hard to see when you're driven by lust and that desire to get out and do things that shouldn't be done. What was once pleasurable will now bring you low. Because remember, pleasure is temporary, but the fruit is permanent. The pleasure is temporary, but the fruit is permanent. And the things that a person does in that moment when they want to fulfill those lusts and do their thing and not have the rules and regulations and want to get away from God and create that distance so they can do it with a clear conscience and not have to worry about the shame of it. Nobody Go to a place where nobody knows them. Whatever you sow there is going to last permanently. You're not, whenever you come to your senses, you're not going to be able to get rid of those things. They, and you just ask anybody in this room that has been through this who has experienced sin, not only the, the, quote, good part, but the evil that comes after. The good is just brief. The evil lasts. And you can't ever get rid of it. And then we see this, this son was sin. Not only he lost everything because of sin, now he's destitute. Here a Jew is wanting to fill his belly with the pigs, which is an unclean animal. He was destitute of all that money. He didn't have the ability to sin anymore, so there's no pleasure left. And he has to look forward to the repercussions of all, the, all that sin that's coming, that's already starting to bear fruit. And there's no one to pity him. Nobody cares. Because he has chased off every person that cared. 
Because those were the people that were trying to get him to walk in the way of God. But he's chased them all away. He's distanced himself from all the people that care. And you know what? Fellow sinners don't care about you. Fellow sinners don't care about each other. They don't. They care about one person. Who do you think that is? Themselves. He was in a deplorable state of life. His rebellion, listen, his rebellion and lust robbed him of his wealth, his morality, his honor, his comfort, his pleasure, his health, no doubt, his friends, his family. Pretty much every good thing in life, sin had robbed him of that. He went out thinking, I just want to have fun. And he was left with nothing. And here's the, here's, the, here's the cold, hard reality. It could have robbed him of his very soul because that's where it all goes. But God intervened. How do you know God intervened? Because God's not mentioned in this parable. Right. God is represented by the Father in this parable. But yet we see God's intervention in this, in this young man's life. Here it is, verse 14. And when he had spent all, here it is, there arose a mighty famine in that land. And he began to be in want. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure none of us, no human being controls the weather. So this is an act of God. Would God change the weather for one wayward son? Maybe because his father's praying for him? I think so. I mean, God, did not God stop the sun when Joshua was fighting in Israel? A famine arose. And see what that famine did? That famine triggered all of that bad fruit that he had sown. And it started to come down. All of his money disappeared because when, when a famine happens, everything goes through the roof like it was during COVID. <laughs> Everything's expensive. He, his money's gone. And once he's, what, listen, once his money is gone, once this world has used a person and they don't have anything left to offer, they will drop you like a bad habit. They will drop you like a disease. And that's exactly what happened. But that was an act of mercy because it was through the trouble of those circumstances. And often God uses trouble. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people say, well, you know, I, don't need, I don't need Christianity because I don't need no crutch. Every Christian I ever heard of, they believe in Jesus only when something went bad. You know why? Because that's when our eyes were finally opened to the delusion that we were living in. It's when all those things come crashing down and we realize that sin is not as good as it, as it, as it first appeared. God does that to us. He brings those things to an end. He shows us the end. He makes us feel the pain so that we will be in a place where we can finally come to ourselves. God intervened in this lost son's life to make him feel the pain of his sin. Verse 17. And when he came to himself. You know what that means? What does it mean when a person comes to themselves or they come to their senses? You know what that means? That means they were delusional. They were irrational, crazy. That's exactly, that is exactly what sin does to people. 
Lust, unbridled lust like that, makes people crazy. It makes people do things that they would not normally do. And I, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. I, I, I've, I've actually known people that sinned and they, they just, they blew it. I mean, they blew it. Irre, ir, irreversibly blew it. And, you, and they had no idea why they had done it. There was no explanation. There was no rationale. Sin makes them crazy. But this, at finally, at the very bottom, he came to himself. Rational thought returned to him. That kind of, you know, pain, pleasure, you know, kind of idea where if I do this, it's going to hurt. Maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. That finally returned to him. And this is the reason why, why sinners, and I say, listen, I'll say more about this in just a minute, but this is the reason why sinners are so self-destructive because they, they've lost it, spiritually speaking. They're not, they're not thinking through things rationally. Sin is totally controlling them. He says this, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. I will arise and go to my... You know what this is? This is repentance. There, I don't think there is a better illustration of what repentance means than this parable right here. Because we read verse... Let's read 17, 18, and 19 real quick. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Let me ask you a question. Where is this young man right now? He's with the pigs. Where is this conversation happening? In his heart. He hasn't even gotten up yet because he gets up in verse 20. All of these thoughts about his father, about his state, are happening in his heart. What he's doing is he's repenting. Because repentance is something that happens inwardly. But then it bears fruit to see outwardly later. The two are intimately connected. You cannot separate them. But repentance is something that happens in the heart. It's that decision. He says, <clears throat> I will rise and go to my father. Notice the distance is closing. He wanted to get away. Now he wants to get close. A sign of repentance. I will say, to, say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. Look at that. I have sinned against heaven. Open confession is a fruit of repentance. I don't want to hear about repentance until there is a confession openly of sin and an acknowledgement of how evil it is. It is required. True repentance doesn't hide what it's done. And it doesn't rephrase it like, well, I did some bad things. It names it. And you know what? In your personal relationships, it's the same way. If you, if you sin against someone and you, you mess up and you harm that relationship, don't go back to them and be like, well, you know, yeah, if I did anything wrong, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. You say, here, here, here's, here's the formula. You say, I did this to you. It was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Name it. That's true repentance. Absent that, I don't believe it. Absent that, it's not scriptural. This young man, he woke up with the pigs and he said, I'm going to go tell my dad, 
I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. When David was confronted by Nathan, David, when Nathan said, thou art the man, what did David reply? What, his immediate reply to Nathan, when Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba, what was his first reply? I have sinned against the Lord. No hiding it, no rephrasing it, no euphemisms stated. And he says this, verse 19, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. This is humility. Deep humility is a part of repentance. There's no attempt to preserve some facade or maintain his honor. His, his honor's gone. It's nothing but shame. Sin should, should, should have, have shame. Listen, don't, listen, when you're talking to somebody about sin, when we're talking to people about sin, we ought not tell them, well, it's okay. It's not okay. Sin should have shame associated with it. But you know what? Even with that shame, when that repentance comes, that shame is embraced. I did it. I deserve all the shame that comes along with this. It's just dust and ashes. Part of true repentance is accepting the shame that your sin deserves. And remember, all of this happens in the man's heart. And then verse 20. And he arose. This is the fruit of repentance. What had happened in his heart was done. It was true repentance. And so it started manifesting in what he did. What he did was not the repentance. The repentance already happened in 17 to 19. Now is the fruit. Like when John the Baptist says, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. This is it. He followed through with what was in his heart. He did not balk. He didn't recoil. He didn't hesitate. And when he had to face the people that he had harmed, he did it. He accepted the shame. And last we see the Father. Verse 20 says, His Father saw Him when He was a great way off. Verse 20 says, When His Father saw Him, He had compassion. He ran to Him. He fell on His neck and He kissed Him. The Father's compassion had not failed while His Son was in rebellion. The Father's affection had not diminished while His Son sinned. The Father rejoiced that his son had repented. He says, bring forth the fatted calf. Let us eat and drink and be merry. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. I just remember, I spent a lot of time talking about the sinner who's away from God, wandering away from God, just fulfilling his lust, just throwing himself at lust, just as much, as much license as he can get away with. And sometimes we think God's ready just to strike that person down. But this is, not, this is not the picture of God here. Now, there is a picture of God in Proverbs where the Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. I'm sorry, that's Psalm, Psalm 7. God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. But this is, the, the wicked is a special class of people, hardened, rebellious sinners who have lost, who, who, who do not respond at all to correction or reproof who devise evil. The wicked is not a class for people that just are just stupidly going along in sin following their lusts. The wicked is another level, scripturally speaking. In this case, the father is not angry. 
He longs for the sinner to return. And he rejoices when he returns. No thought of retribution. No thought of getting even. No thought of, well, I'm going to make him feel real bad about it. No thought at all. Only joy. Now, as we close, go back to the first two verses of the chapter. Verse 1 says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Of course, the Pharisees in verse 2 murmured. Jesus gave this parable to the publicans and to the sinners. You know, eight times in the Bible, publicans and sinners shows up together, those terms. So this lost son is a picture of the sinner. The father is a picture of God, of Jesus, if you will. But notice, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners. Now we know all the times that Jesus received publicans and sinners, publican being a tax collector, an extortioner basically, a corrupt, uh, a corrupt person, a liar. I mean, we're talking about people, lady of ill repute. We're talking about uh, drunkards. We're talking about people who had, who had sinned. You see over and over and over that Jesus was with publicans and sinners. He was with sinners, with sinners. And you, then you see this parable, this lost sinner who finally comes back to the Father and he embraces him. And sometimes people use this idea that Jesus is with public, publicans and sinners to argue, well, Jesus doesn't really have a problem with your sin. You know, he just, he just wants a big, happy family. That's not the case at all. Do you know why this says publicans and sinners? Because that was their reputation. By the time they met Jesus, they had repented. How do you know that? Well, in Luke chapter 3, we read about the publicans had been baptized with the baptism of John, the Baptist. That was a baptism of what? Repentance. But these people that had this reputation of being lost and, and drunkards and, 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 and fornicators and tax collectors and extortioners and harlots and everything like that, yes, they were around Jesus. But the reason they were around Jesus is because they had repented. They had made it right. And people get this idea that church is full of snooty, self-righteous people. And only good people go to church. No, no, we're, we're just a bunch of sinners. They have repented. That's it. A bunch of sinners who've repented. You know what? Jesus likes to hang out with us. The marriage supper of the Lamb. All those millions of people that will be with the Lord in heaven. Just a bunch of sinners who've repented. And the Lord's going to rejoice to be with us. So I want to ask you as we close, in verse 7 and verse 10, who is rejoicing? In the context, who is rejoicing? God is rejoicing. God is rejoicing when the sinner repents. Let's pray together.